Uh, before we get into chapter 10 this evening, I want to give a correction of something that I said last week that I need to uh, just make sure that you understand. So um, whenever, I, whenever I do something like that, I try to correct it as soon as possible. Um, and this was a really silly thing, actually, because we were talking about the, you know, as we're getting into Solomon's life, and, and now we're getting at the Solomon's life right at the apex of his reign and his life, really, and tonight is really the apex. It's, it's, the, it's the top of the triangle before he starts to go down. <laughs> and so as we were discussing that last week, if you remember, we were talking about the different kings of Israel because uh, it's an unfortunate thing, but all of the northern kingdoms, we, we know that after Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam is going to uh, only really have jurisdiction over two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and then Jeroboam is going to have jurisdiction over the, uh, the northern ten tribes. God's going to split that whole thing in half uh, because of uh, a number of things. But one thing that's very interesting is that because uh, the northern ten tribes, their very beginnings with Jeroboam was founded in idolatry. And so the northern ten kings, they never really recovered. They always stayed in that frame of mind. And not one single king in the northern kingdom was a good king. They were all idolatrous, all horrible kings. But in the southern uh, state uh, of Israel, uh, over Jerusalem, there were only a handful of really good kings. The majority of them were evil, but there were a handful. In fact, there were six of them that were decent, and of those six, there were a few that were really exemplary. And one of those that I failed to mention last week, because um, I, I think you can appreciate this, as you're, um, whenever you're looking at a chart and you're trying to transcribe something into, you know, into, into a note, sometimes your eye will skip, and I skipped a real huge man, uh, uh, excuse me, Hezekiah. And he was a good king. You know, he had his issues, but he, he was another uh, great king of Judah. And so I failed to mention him last week, but he is certainly a good king. You can read about him in Second Kings chapters 18 through 20 and also in Second Chronicles 29 through 32. So I failed to mention that. So I just wanted to get that out in the open before we get started. And, uh, and also, while I'm on this idea of corrections, I made another boo-boo. And that is, um, if you remember, we were talking about the 420 talents of, of gold in the previous chapter. And um, I made a mistake in looking at this wrong, uh, it was a dated um, uh, estimate of the price of gold. And it's really, it wasn't $1,100 as I spoke, but it was around $1,800 you know, an ounce instead of $1,100. So there was one gentleman in the, in the fellowship who, when he heard it was $1,100, he went home and had to double check because he had some, um, some stocks in gold. And he's like, if it dropped that much, I got to do something really quick. So, um, so that was kind of interesting, actually, kind of fun. You know, so um, I might just do that from time to time just to see the expressions on your face. And if you leave before the study is over with, I know you've probably got stocks and bonds. I'm, only, I'm just having fun. So anyway, that's it. So let's go on and uh, move into chapter 10. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, last week we looked at, uh, obviously, chapter 9, where God appeared to Solomon the second time. And we looked at this relationship between Hiram, the king of Tyre, and Solomon, and how they had this business relationship, and, um, and how they developed a, um, uh, really, sea exports, or a way by the sea. Uh, they, Solomon built ships, and Hiram's men helped Solomon because they were seamen. They knew exactly how to deal in those kinds of bigger waters, and they were inexperienced. And so Solomon agreed with Hiram from the king of Tyre from the north, and they developed this business relationship. And, and so they, they did that. And so now, as things are ramping up now for Solomon, again, I, I said this prior, but... 
now as we look at chapter 10, we're, we're well into Solomon's 40-year reign. We're probably uh, somewhere at least 20 years, maybe even 22 or 23 years now into his reign. Okay, because remember, it took him seven years to build the house of God, the temple, and then another 13 years to build the temple complex, you know, the, t- uh, the house of the uh, forest of Lebanon and all those other, that whole complex that took another 13 years. So a total of 20 years. And so now we're going beyond that now when Solomon is starting to trade and his wealth is starting to really, really increase. And um, the chapter tonight really highlights the, the pinnacle of Solomon's reign and of his fame. And his great wealth is certainly cataloged here for us to some extent. And it's from this high perch that Solomon is in that we'll see Solomon begin to fall because of his disobedience. And we're going to get into that disobedience. Uh, He's already developing uh, these signs and these things that he's doing that were very opposed uh, to the word of God. And certainly Solomon knew these things, but for whatever reason, he began to amass uh, cattle, or not cattle, but horses and chariots. And, and God told him that he would make him prosperous, and he certainly was. But there is also that element within the human heart that says, well, if you're going to increase me, then I'm going to help you out in this, Lord, and I'm going to increase your increase. And I think there's a possibility, just a possibility, that perhaps that Solomon went maybe over the bounds of maybe perhaps of what God had given him the grace to handle. It's possible because when it comes to money, that's uh, an Achilles heel for many people, and especially when given a lot of money. And so tonight we're going to be talking a lot about that because the Word of God has a lot in it concerning the dangers of wealth. And unfortunately, many people associate wealthy people with corruption. They associate wealthy people with arrogance and even suspicion of how they accumulated that wealth. And um, it's a really an unfortunate thing uh, because we should never judge a, ber- a person or, we, you know, the old phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. And we get that from 1 Samuel 16. Remember, when... Samuel went to Jesse's house and he's looking for a king. And God told him there'd be a king of the sons of Jesse. So Samuel naturally gets all of his seven sons out. David was the eighth, but he was out in the fields with the sheep. So he gathers them all up from the tallest to the youngest. And of course, David wasn't there initially. He looks at Eliab and he said, certainly this is God's anointed. He's handsome. He's tall, you know. And God, remember, said to him, he says, don't look at him because of his physical appearance or his stature. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks on the heart. And so we have to be careful with this idea of people who are wealthy. Because uh, many of the patriarchs in the Bible were very wealthy. Men who worked very hard and they were uh, uh, given great uh, riches as a result of their hard work. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. As long as you've obtained that wealth in godly ways, in honesty and hard work, and if, as long as you have a good attitude toward that wealth. See, God doesn't have a problem with people who are wealthy. It's just what they do with that and how they gain that, and that's very important. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs thirteen eleven it says, Wealth gotten by vanity or emptiness shall be diminished, but he that gathers by labor shall increase. In other words, the one who works with his hands and really is working hard to do his, what he does well, he's going to be rewarded for his labors. And, and there's something really wonderful about that. In fact, our country was founded upon that. You know, our, our, everything that we see in our country is people worked hard. You know, people from abroad came over through Ellis Island with nothing but their shoes and a, and a bag of, of clothes, and they had nothing. And, they, and many of them are successful businessmen and women whose companies are still with us today, you know, generations later. And if you work hard, you get rewarded, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to work hard. Whether you work hard and get wealthy or whether you work hard and you just have a meager living, 
It's good to work hard and to do it honestly as unto the Lord. And it's good for us to remember that because all that we have been given has been given to us by God, and we need to remember that his work is the greatest investment that we can invest in, right? The investment of the church and what God wants to do. That's the greatest investment we could make. You may, not get a, you may not see it on the ticker tape, you know, the S&P, or you may not see it in the Dow Jones, you may not see it on the ticker tape, but guess what, folks? As we invest in the kingdom of God for the souls of men and women, God is going to reward you in glory. And that's where it's really going to matter. I could care less about what happens on this earth as far as, you know, being, you know, um, my rewards... Uh, the rewards that are going to last for eternity are the ones I'm more concerned about. And, and so it's good to have a, a good perspective on that and, and a good perspective on wealthy people. I personally know and I'm acquainted with people who are very extremely wealthy um, and you'd never know it by looking at them. You'd never know it. And, and, and they're down to earth. They're very they're generous. They're, they're, they're guarded. They understand how people look at them. But they're not stingy. They're 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 just. But they're not a spendthrifts either. And they got good hearts. And you know that's that's a, a good thing. But for many, wealth is a snare. In fact, turn with me to Psalm forty nine. Psalm forty nine. Psalm 49. <clears throat> it says, They that trust in their wealth, uh, beginning in verse 6, excuse me, the psalmist says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever, that, that he should still live forever and see not corruption." For he sees that wise men die, and like, likewise the fool and the brutish person perishes and leaves their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and that their dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands after their own names. And nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not, and he is like the beasts that perish." And this their way is their folly, yet their, pros- their posterity approves their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. He shall, his glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise him when you do well to yourself. But he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. And man that is an honor and understands not is like a beast that perishes. So, you know, we have to be really careful with wealth. And as we look at Solomon's life, uh, the wealth that this man had was insurmountable. He, he made Elon Musk and um, um, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, he would dwarf them all. <laughs> That's how much, how wealthy Solomon was. And yet God warned them, the children of Israel, uh, let me just read this to you, but you might want to write the reference. And this is a, a reference that you've heard before. It's Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 10 through 20. God warns his people before they enter the promised land. He says, when you have eaten, when you're in the land, Israel, and God is saying this, when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he hath given thee. And by the way, I'm reading in the King James right now. Forgive me, so that was just my fault. But beware that you forget not the Lord your God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and you're full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. 
which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought you forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble you, and that he might prove you to do you good at your latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and my might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord your God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto your fathers as it is to this day. And it shall be, if you do not, if you do at all, forget the Lord your God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And this is exactly where we find uh, Solomon. In Psalm 62, verse 10, it says, Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Again, there's nothing wrong with having wealth or money, but how you obtained it and your attitude toward it is everything. It's everything. And I'm not saying that Solomon's heart was stuck on, on, on all of this, but I think there was a point where he kind of augmented perhaps what the Lord had given him the grace to do uh, because he, he went beyond that, I believe, and it, and it corrupted him. And it's kind of interesting, too, when you think about the, the wisest man Many of the Proverbs, and if you look in Ecclesiastes, you see him speaking of these things that he violated himself. I think there came a point in his life, and this is just my opinion, um, is that, and I think this is true for the human heart, you get to the point where you have so much success and so much fame and so much glory, and it just it doesn't seem to end. It just seems to be perpetuating. There comes a point where you start, your head starts going south. And you start thinking, A, that maybe you even deserve this, or something that you did um, you know, got you that wealth. That's a, a, a temptation. Or you let it destroy you. That's why I, I never desired, I, I, think, I, think, I thought it would be fun to win. You know, I don't play the Powerball and all that stuff, but I've often, we've all fantasized about, you know, what would we do if somebody gave us a ticket and then you get like 465 million, right? And then the cash payout's like 235 million after taxes. And so you have this lump sum, you know, and we all think about what we would do with it. And honestly, I would be frightened to death because I think it honestly would probably destroy me. And maybe God could, since I know that about myself, maybe he could bequeath me with that kind of wealth, knowing that I wouldn't. <laughs> but I doubt it. <laughs> you got to play to win, and I don't play, so I, I'm not worried about that. But you know, our, our wealth is in heaven, our, in glory with him. That, that's what we really need to be concerned about. I love what Psalm 73 says. You can just write this down. He said, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as of our pure in heart, but as for me, my, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we see that all around us today. So we can relate to the psalmist here. He says, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, these high and mighty wealthy people, power shakers, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with with abundance, they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, the psalmist would say, and I've washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought to know, to understand this, it was too painful for me, and here it is, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. 
And see, that's as a child of God, we need to remember that. And it's very easy to look around. You know, we, we always do. We're like sheep, we, we, we look, we're in our pasture and we have this tendency to look over in another pasture and see what other people are doing and how, how their lives are. And, and, and we get a little bit jealous and then we, it, secretly in our heart, we don't even know it, but we try to attain what they have. And then we realize why there's no peace and why the peace goes. And we, we don't realize why we get into trouble because God hasn't designed us for that. Be content with such things as we have, isn't it? For godliness with contentment is great gain. And so when I begin to lust for other things, I better be really careful because if I strive and I s- to get that thing, whatever it is, it's going to be like gravel in my mouth and I'm soon going to be in bad shape. And I've seen that in my own life and I'm sure at, most of us have at some point. And it doesn't even have to be money necessarily. It could be anything. But we learn, don't we? But notice a good attitude to have toward wealth as we get into this. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 30, this is a, a good attitude to have. And this is the one that I, I, I have right now, I believe, because I, I, re, I really believe this. It, it, life is simple when you're not exorbitantly rich, and I certainly am not. Notice what it says in Proverbs in verse 7. And we don't know uh, who this is. Uh, the author is Agur. We don't know. Some say that that might be a, a, a name for Solomon. We don't really know. But he says two things. And he's speaking to the Lord, two things have I required of you, deny me not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Psalm 37 says this, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked Psalm 37, verse 16. And it's true, isn't it? You know, when you have more money, you have more toys. And the more toys you have, the more you have to upkeep those toys and pay insurance on those toys. And then, you know, and it's just, it's, it's over. It's just too much. But here in chapter 10, at this halfway point, Solomon's riding high and enjoying the good life. So notice... Let's read the first 13 verses together. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And so Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was literally no more spirit left in her. And then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and, and, uh, and prosperity exceeded the fame of which I heard. So happy are the men and happy are these, your servants, who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such almug wood, nor was the, the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. And so she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. 
I think that's interesting, don't you? And just to, to think this woman was wealthy herself, and she comes and she bestows upon Solomon all of this, all of this blessing upon him. Not that he needed it. But this was something they did in the Orient. Uh, it was a common thing for them to do. When, when there was a wise king, people would travel around and to hear the, the wise king. And certainly Solomon, God told him, I'm going to make you the wisest man. There'll be nobody before you that's been as wise and nobody after you, obviously, except for Jesus himself. But here is this man, and God has exalted him greatly of, of all the world. Because he didn't ask for the money, remember that. He asked for wisdom, and God gave him that wisdom. And he also gave him what he didn't ask for. But notice back in verse 1, the queen of Sheba. This Sheba literally means seven. Uh, Sheba uh, means seven, or it means an oath. And this, this nation was actually, if you were to look at the Arabian Peninsula, uh, right to the, um, the south and, and south... Um, southwest of, of, of Israel, where today we would call it Yemen. Yemen is, is the, the country. We believe that that is the place where this queen was uh, presiding over this place of Sheba. And notice she came because of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Notice it was the name of the Lord that made Solomon famous as long as, you know, everything that Solomon was given was given to him by the Lord, and we would do well to remember that, right? But as long as Solomon proclaimed the name of the Lord and walked in God's ways, God would honor him. But without the Lord, Solomon was really nothing. He was really nothing. And, you know, even Jesus, remember, he said this to his disciples in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 32. He said this, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And so as long as Solomon was proclaiming the, 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 the riches of God and his glory and keeping his eyes on him, God was fine to prosper the man. And again, I think there's something there. There's nothing wrong with having great, great anything. Maybe God has given you a great gift, a great skill, a, a great ability, and maybe you're doing really well with it. Rejoice in the Lord and give him the glory and never touch it. <laughs> never touch it. And give it all you've got because if God has given you a gift or an ability, use it and make sure that you give him the glory and give to him. And give it all you've got. Seriously. If you've got a gift, if you've got something that God has given you, an aptitude for a certain thing, go at it with all pistons firing. Seriously. Go after it with all you've got and then glorify him in it and give him praise for it. Because the Lord is a sustainer. But notice she came to him, testing him with hard questions. These are riddles. She would offer riddles or have proverbs or dark sayings, and, and Solomon would interpret those things. And, and notice, you know, she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels and spices and gold and precious stones, and she traveled approximately 1,200 miles there from the, uh, the southern tip of the tip of Arabia and right along, because uh, the, the Red Sea, would be here, and here is the Sinai Peninsula. Actually, if you're looking at me this way, uh, here's the Red Sea, here's the Sinai Peninsula and the Gulf of Aqaba here, and she would travel down there at, at, uh, at the southern tip of Arabia, and she would travel 1,200 miles right along the coast. There was a, they call it the Spice Route. It was a road for, for, for commerce and trade, and she would travel that road 1,200 miles to see Solomon with all of these uh, servants who obviously were there for protection from raiders and, and things of that nature, but a very wealthy woman bringing a lot of wealth to Solomon. And Solomon answered all of her questions. And, and, and it says that when the queen of Sheba, verse 4, had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and she's seen the house that he built, the food at his table, all the servants, the way he approached everything, his ascent, I mean, she was just, there was no more spirit left in her. Literally, she was left breathless. 
She hadn't been told half of what was the reality of who Solomon was. And she was just blown away. She was blown away. And she said to the king, it was true what I heard. However, you know, half of it I didn't know until I came and saw it for myself. But happy, verse 8, are your men and your servants that stand before you and hear your wisdom. And bless the Lord your God. Blessed be Jehovah. That's what the word she used. Bless Jehovah your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because you loved because the Lord loved, has loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and, and, and righteousness. Now, on this verse, I would write a couple of things, some verses down. Because as she is saying this in verse 9, you can look at four different passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, and she is basically confirming these Scriptures in some shape or form. And the first one is in Psalm 2. You'll, you'll see that as you, if you read verse 9 again in context and then read all of Psalm 2, you'll see what I mean. Also, Psalm 110, you will see that as well. And certainly the one that we know very well, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. And Isaiah chapter 11, the first five verses. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and then... Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 5. But notice in verse 10, she gave the king 120 talents of gold. And I did get this right this time. So 120 talents of gold, just to give you an idea of how much that is in, our, in today's money. As of the 17th, gold was at $1,826 an ounce. So 120 talents of gold, uh, each, pound is, uh, each talent is about 75 pounds. It's about four and a half tons of gold. It's about $263,059,200 that this queen brought. That's how much it would be today. And so it was pretty expensive. It was a great expense that she brought. And it also showed her, her worship. Not that she was coming to worship necessarily Solomon, but she was coming to sit at his feet and to learn. And she didn't come empty-handed. She, she was willing to give for that wisdom and, and to hear what he had to say. And certainly, no doubt, uh, maybe the Queen of Sheba, being down there in the southern part of Saudi Arabia, there's no doubt that she had some questions concerning trade and, and maybe even working out some deals with him because they would all, all those ships from, uh, from Hiram would have to come through right next to that little port or coming right into the Red Sea there. And uh, they would have to... Um, do business. And so maybe she had some business to talk with him about too, but she didn't come empty-handed. It reminds me of Genesis 27. You recall this is when Jacob approached his father Isaac at a very great age, and Isaac blessed Jacob and said to him, and this is what he said to him, let people serve you and all nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you, and cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. But I can't help to think that this verse 9 here is somewhat of a partial fulfillment of this Old Testament passage, this blessing. Because remember, Jacob hadn't even given birth to the 12 tribes yet. So Judah was still in Jacob's loins in a sense. And yet Isaac is giving him this blessing and saying, let all of the earth you know, bless you and bow down to you. And certainly he's speaking to Jacob, but also to Jacob's progeny, his, his son Judah, especially, who would come, the, the, the kings of Israel, certainly David and certainly Jesus Christ, right? Ultimately in the millennial reign. Kings and queens from all over the world. It's, it tells us this. We're, we're going to get there here in, in, in the 10th chapter here. But let me just read to you what it says in verse 24 and 25. And all the earth sought Solomon. They sought to him to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses, mules, 
a rate by year by year. And again, I, I think even further into history, even further of history to us today, because we know that as she was coming to basically, not, not worship him in a sense, but she was bowing down to him and hearing him. And I think about those verses, and I think about how at the end, when Jesus Christ comes back in his physical second coming to the earth, and he sets up his millennial reign, it, it captures it in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16. Let me read it to you. It says, it shall come to pass, and this, I often look at the book of Zechariah, especially the last 14 chapters. It, it's, very old, it's very New Testament sounding. In fact, there's more information in the, about the millennial reign of Christ in Zechariah than there is in the book of Revelation. <laughs> and there's even more in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the Old Testament book, there's parts of that that sound very, it's still future to us yet. But notice what Zechariah says about this people coming from all nations. It says, and it shall come to pass, verse 16 of Zechariah 14, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, even in the millennial reign, they're still going to have feasts, sacrifices even, but they will do them in memorial, not because they need to, because Jesus' blood was shed once on the cross for, the, for sins, right? We don't need to, the Jews don't need to sacrifice animals to atone for sin anymore, but they will continue in the millennial reign to do those sacrifices, but they will do them in memorial of of that. And certainly Jesus will be the culmination of all of that. And it shall come to pass that everyone, I, I think I read that, excuse me, verse 17, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and not enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices... Notice, everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Again, speaking of a time yet future to us in the millennial reign of Christ. And you know what, folks? I, I think about how soon this could be. Let me just put it in perspective. The millennium. If the Lord were to rapture the church today... We don't know exactly the, the time frame at, when, when the rapture occurs and when the seven-year tribulation begins. Some believe there could be a year or two or even five years before uh, the Israel and the Antichrist, who will just be a European ruler who will make a treaty with them. But we know that once that happens, there'll be seven years. And so if, if the rapture were to occur today, you know, let's just figure ten years after that. And then Jesus comes back at the end of that 10 years, you know, at, at the end of whatever this interval is, plus the seven-year tribulation. He comes back and sets up his kingdom. Do you realize that if the church were raptured today, 10 years from now could be, could be the beginning? I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it could be if we were raptured tonight, which we don't know. So I'm not setting any dates. But it'd be really cool if it happened right now, because then you wouldn't have to listen to me, right? <laughs> So let's go on here. So very interesting, very interesting. And the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, this place that was plentiful in gold, which again we believe is right on the other side, just to the west of the Queen of Sheba or that area of Sheba. Today we would call it Yemen. And immediately to the west of that, right through that channel, is where they believe that Ophir, the land of Ophir, where all this gold was mined, very possible it came from that place. But notice, the king made steps of Almug uh, wood, or Algum wood, uh, same thing, for the house of the Lord. And uh, he made stringed instruments and harps for the musicians. 
And, and it says, Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, beside what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so even though she had given him all this great wealth, Solomon would also be giving her things. I don't know what the proportion would be, but it really doesn't matter. Notice in verse 14 now, it says the weight, and this is very interesting, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now, if you're a Bible prophecy student, that number should pique your curiosity because it's uh, one of the few times in the scripture that it's mentioned. The other time it's mentioned is in Revelation 13, in verses 11 through 18, specifically in verse 18, because we remember that this is really just, uh, uh, this number is pregnant with foreboding as it also represents the number of the beast that is coming yet future to us after the rapture of the church from the earth. This man, the, the number of his name, there's going to be something about that, that, uh, that number that's going to be associated with a man Okay, so don't worry about this stuff that's going on about the digital currency. That all that is is a setup for ultimately what is going to come. All you really have to do, folks, is don't, if you're, if you're concerned about it at all, which I don't think you need to. I mean, I mean I'm concerned about the one world economy because I can see it happening. And it's probably going to happen closer and sooner than we would like or think. But it's when they cause something to be in your hand or on your forehead then just regardless of what it is, you just don't take it, right? And you don't make an allegiance to any man or any system or his government, all right? So you can read in Revelation uh, 13, beginning in verse 18, it says, Here is wisdom, speaking of this antichrist. Here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. The beast is synonymous with the Antichrist, the man of sin. He has many titles, but this beast is the one that is going to have this control over all of European uh, governance. It's going to be the revived Roman Empire. And folks, if you're paying attention in your news right now, do you notice that the European Union right now, because of what's going on with Russia, they are uniting together now like never before because they don't want this oppression coming anymore. And so now what they do, in their minds, they think that they've got to unite and put all their differences aside and unite and have this strong force and do you realize that all they're doing is fulfilling Bible prophecy? Because at some point, this conglomerate is going to produce one world leader. We don't know who he is, but it's coming. It's coming. The Bible says it's coming. And are you ready for that? It may be coming, you know, it's, it, things are happening so quickly and rapidly right now, my head is spinning. It really is. And I'm not one of those to look at, you know, look for the devil under every rock. I, I'm not like that. But when you see these trends that we have been looking at uh, through the book of Revelation a year ago, or, or almost two years ago now, as we've looked through that, and as we have been following that, it, it's all happening. It's all falling into place, folks. So I'm, more than anything else, I'm not even looking for a, a, you know, Trump back on the, <laughs> you know, in the presidency. I'm looking for Jesus. I'm looking for Christ to come. That's what I'm more concerned about. I, now, don't get me wrong. I'm a patriot, and I love my country. I'd love to see uh, some, uh, well, I'll just leave it there. I want to see my country restored. I do, because I love it. I got a dual citizenship. So do you. And it's stewardship. We need to take care of and, and do what we can to slow down the spread of sin. We need to be involved, but we also have this understanding that this earth is not my home. But guess what? We got dual citizenship. You happen to be born in America, and we've got blessed privileges. We've got a Bill of Rights and a Constitution. We've got much to be thankful for, and we must fight for that on our knees, and in the ballot box. It's important that we do that, right? But we also know our citizenship is in heaven. We have, we have a dual citizenship. And we have to be good stewards of both. And we have to be concerned about both. But notice, 
Even though God had promised uh, Solomon great wealth, it's possible uh, that Solomon went way beyond. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, God, again, speaking to the children of Israel, he says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not. Notice this, because we're already seeing Solomon go south here. He's already made these decisions, and do you think that he'd never ever read this? No, he read this. I am sure that David and Bathsheba several times over his young life did nothing but read the law to him. Every Jewish male and female, every Jewish person would know these things. It would be part of their DNA. But notice what it says, God telling them, but he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall you multiply wives, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. We're going to see next chapter that that's precisely what happens. And yet these warnings, this accountability that God was giving to Solomon and everybody actually in the nation, he's giving them this accountability. And there's going to be no, there's going to be saying, I, I, I didn't know. God's going to say, oh no, Solomon. Do you remember last week we talked about the accountability that, Sol that God had made sure that Solomon understood? David told him, God met Solomon two different times, told him, his father told him at least two or three times, and now he, he's doubly, triply, quadruply, quintuply accountable for these things. And nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. That's what, the, that's what it says. And so already Solomon has made decisions. You know, God was going to make him wealthy, and he did. But you know, there's a point where, you know, the heart never is satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied, is it? That's why these big billionaires, these guys like, you know, Elon and uh, people like Jeff Bezos, you know, there, there's always, once you get to that level, there's other fields to conquer. It's not good enough to just be the top five. It's like, no, I want to be number one now. It's just a pride thing. <laughs> for many, not for all, and maybe not for those two men that I mentioned. I don't know them, so I, I really can't say. But it's possible. It's possible. So notice, besides that, from traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, from the governors of the country, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. These are some shields that you necessarily wouldn't go into war with. I mean, gold, unless it's mixed with other alloys, is going to be soft. You wouldn't go into battle with these. These would be more like for parades and to just show off, you know, to you know, say, look how good the Lord has been to us, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that as long as your heart's right in it. But these shields aren't necessarily going to go into battle. But we're going to find that later on the enemies are going to sack all that stuff and take it to Rome. They're going to take it to Babylon. And who knows where it's at now. Um, some of it's probably over in Baghdad in the museum. Some of it's probably in the floor, uh, the bottom floor vault of the Vatican. We don't really know where it came from or where it is. But he also made 300 shields of hammer gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, and he overlaid it with pure gold. And certainly he would get this ivory from, from the east as they would you know, uh, harvest the ivory from the tusks of, of elephants and other animals like that to, to get this ivory and overlaid it then with gold. And the throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was around the back, round at the back, and there were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had ever been seen of any other kingdom. And obviously these twelve lions uh, very likely represented the twelve tribes of Israel, and of course because Solomon is of the tribe of Judah, 
The lion was the symbol of the tribe of Judah. And so all King Solomon's drinking vessels, verse 21, were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and monkeys. And so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Think of that. There was no one like him. No one like him. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And see, it's a time like that, and I think we can all relate to this, or maybe we can't, but I think we can understand. Put yourself in his position. It's a very careful time that you've got to be in when you're at that place. When you've been basically handed everything. I mean, think about it. Solomon really came into the kingdom with a silver spoon in his mouth. His, his dad, you know, David, had amassed everything to build the temple. He couldn't do it himself, but God had given him all the materials. He'd given him the blueprint of the thing. And now Solomon comes in, and he's basically just... And, and even David had the, the order of the servants, the, the priests, the orders of the, the way that they would work. And he had it all, and he just basically handed it to his son and surrounded his son with all of his advisors. And they watched over him, and they groomed him, and then he became King Solomon. And God had given him great wisdom. What an amazing thing. What a privileged life. What a blessing it must have been. But those are times when we really have to be careful when we're spoiled like that. You know, because there is this sense of entitlement. There, there can be this sense of, you know, well, I'm, I'm, this has happened to me because I really am all of that. And I'm sure that the Lord was testing Solomon at different times to, to get his heart in alignment with God. And we'll see that next week he, he really starts to take a turn. And it's not unlike the nature of man. And I find it interesting, even the steps going up, there were six steps, because six is the number of man. If I were Solomon, I would have put seven, because that's the number of completion and the number of perfection. <laughs> you know, but he put six. I, I just, I'm curious of why that is. And, I, and this is a side note. Okay, this, this little tidbit's for free. Okay, you don't get charged for this. I noticed something the other day, it just kind of... Actually, it was about a year ago. I was walking up my staircase, and I noticed that there were 12 steps. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this is true in most houses. And it, and it is. Most houses are 12 steps. And I thought, about, I thought about that. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. So anyway, I'm sure that wasn't very valuable to you. So let's move on. So. Notice, <laughs> verse 25, each man brought his presents, uh, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 1, chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the different chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. We, again, we just read that he wasn't supposed to do this, but he did it anyway. And Jerusalem was a chariot city along with, we believe, Hazor. It's spelled H-A-Z-O-R, but I, I think it's pronounced Hazor. Hazor. So Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo is another chariot city. And when we go to Israel, like I said, we visit this, and you can actually see the stables. They've uncovered them, and you, you, you can walk right in them. And it's amazing to see the troughs, and you, you just, it blows your mind to think that something like that is right there for people to see. But Megiddo and also Gezer, they're among the chariot cities that Solomon had. But isn't it interesting that just the, the, the nature of, of man, you know, Solomon knowing in his heart this was wrong, and yet his father wrote a psalm. Excuse me, Psalm 20, verse 7, it says this. This is one that we all know very well. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, the name of Jehovah. In other words, some men trust in those things, but we're going to remember we are going to trust in the Lord. And I think that's a really wonderful thing for us 
to remember, regardless of what you have, regardless of your abilities and skills, regardless of anything, remember the things that man trusts in, let them have all of that. But if we can say, if we can say, I trust the Lord, do we really trust him? And I think it's, it's usually in times of difficulty that our, 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 our words are tested. And he's doing that in my life too, and I know he's doing it with you too. And folks, let me say something. I, I, I believe that in our country, yet in the future here, we're going to have to really trust the Lord a lot more than we do today. I believe that. So trust him. He's trustworthy. It may not go exactly the way you want. You may not even like the, what's happening or what could happen, what might happen. But you know what? We have to remember that verse. Who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in the money that you've put in your account? That's 20% of most of everybody's uh, IRA accounts just vanished recently. <laughs> right? Are you going to trust in that? Is it going to come back? Is it going to get worse? Don't really know. Not to scare anybody here, but who are you trusting in? Because you can trust the Lord. And we need to learn to draw upon him. We need to trust in the Lord our God. The Lord our God. Verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. And also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva. Kiva is, uh, we believe, uh, is uh, Cilicia, where I believe where Saul was born. In that area in modern-day Turkey, uh, they believe is where this Kiva is. The merchants uh, brought them in Kiva at the current price. And now a chariot was imported from Egypt, cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So now he becomes a, an importer of goods and certainly there's tariffs on those imports of goods and there's kickbacks that he gets because of uh, what uh, the lands that are going through and the routes that they're using. And so Solomon is becoming a very wealthy man. But we have to be careful of wealth, just to finish up here. Just be very careful of wealth. And again, if you're wealthy, praise the Lord. No one, you don't have to worry about anybody taking it from you. God is not saying you've got to give it all away. But use it for the glory of God, whatever that is. And don't let your heart get carried away. Don't set your heart on those things. The Bible says that riches have wings and they just fly away at times. And 20% of people's, some of their stuff has flown away recently, all right? It's flying away. But where is my trust? What is my attitude toward money, toward riches, toward those things? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. If there's one thing we can remember tonight, other than the obvious warning, it's to trust in the Lord. Let's grow in our trust of the Lord. And a lot of times I find, have you ever prayed for patience and then find that you're in situations where you find yourself really impatient? Could it be that God is turning up the heat in some things? Because I rarely get patient when things are not provoking me, but I learn patience when I'm pushed beyond my envelope. Remember that rubber band that I have in the, in the thing up there? Remember that? God, when, when everything is going well and I'm sitting back drinking iced tea and popcorn, my rubber band is not being stretched at all, right? And nothing is happening, but it's when I'm stretched and I'm going, oh my gosh, Lord, I'm about ready to lose my mind. I'm about ready to pick this hammer up off my tool chest and throw it at that thing or that person, Right then, you're realizing that your 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 patience is being exercised, and it's like a muscle. If it doesn't get exercised, you don't even know what you got in you. But oh my goodness, when you realize, I thought I was a patient person, Lord, and then all of a sudden you allow this thing. And so the same thing with trust in the Lord. We're going to have to trust Him. I believe we're going to have to trust Him more and more. 
it's a good thing to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Isn't that the exhortation from the proverb? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding, but in all of your ways. Trust in the Lord, he will direct your path. Your paths. Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... uh, your word, Lord, and how rich it is. And we thank you for how much we, we learn just by going through uh, the Old Testament. And, and we, we know that, Lord, you fashioned our hearts alike, Lord. We're no different inside than Solomon was. And, Lord, many of us w- would probably respond very similarly to the way Solomon did, uh, especially if your Holy Spirit wasn't indwelling us, Lord. Who knows what we would be capable of doing But God, we're thankful that you hold our hearts in your hand. And Lord, tonight I ask that you would give us right hearts. Um, Give us faithful hearts. Lord, help us to be good stewards with the things you've given us. Help us to trust you, Lord, in every single thing that goes on in our lives. To trust you, Lord. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, you've proven over and over again even when your people went through very difficult times, even when the first century church was going through all of its persecution and all of its poverty, God, you provided for them and you helped them and you gave them something much more. Lord, I love what it says in Hebrews, Lord, that, Lord, of which these people that went through these difficult things, the world was not worthy of them. Lord, I pray that our faith and our trust in you would grow. And Lord, that we would be wonderful, loving ambassadors for you, Jesus. So we thank you. And just uh, grant us a, a good night, Lord. Get us home safely. Bless our day tomorrow. And help us, Lord, again, to trust you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.